episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free, continuous delivery. Check them out at CodeShip.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 183 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm going to give you a quick reminder. If you do JavaScript, go sign up for JS Remote Conf at jsremoteconf.com. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Ben Hammersley. Hi there. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Um, I'm a writer and a broadcaster from the UK, but based really on planes around the world. I uh, lecture around the world on the effects of technology uh, on society and, and consult for governments and the military and so on around the world. And then I, at the moment, I have a BBC TV series called, and you have to say this in a silly voice, um, it's called <clears throat> Cyber Crimes with Ben Hammersley. Exactly. Which is about the, the evil world of <clears throat> cyber crime. Uh, so there you go. We can talk about all of these things. Do you have sidekicks like Doctor Who and Sherlock? They are my bitches, yes. <laughs> Awesome. So I have two very pressing questions I have to ask before we really get going. The first one is, Is are you the one that coined the term podcast? <laughs> oh, God. This follows me everywhere I go. Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. But and I'd love to say that it was some form of heroic, you know, word creation story where I, you know, I went to the top of a mountain and, you know, discussed the creation of this word with a monk and then brought it back down and, and gave it unto, a, unto the universe. But Actually, the story is that I was writing about in 2004, I think it was, I was writing a story in the Guardian newspaper here in the UK about this new phenomenon of automatically downloading audio files via the medium of a specially configured RSS feed. And it was very, very close to the deadline. And my uh, copy editor said that it was a couple of sentences short. And please, could I write a couple of extra sentences? Because it was very, very, very close to the deadline. And they didn't want to have to sort of pad it out themselves. And so I wrote this sort of sentence where I said something like, 
but what shall we call this new phenomenon? And then I made up three or four different new words. And one of those was podcast. And that was published. And then about a year later, I had an email from the Oxford English Dictionary people saying, we see you wrote this sentence. Where did you come up with the word? And I said, well, you know, too much caffeine. And it was five minutes to go before the newspaper had to be printed. And, and they said, well, like jolly good. And, you know, it's, and so it's, uh, I didn't know. You know, I was sort of unaware. Wow, so it's know. official. You got an email from the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> That's right. I, well, I just realized I have a new item for my bucket list. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think they do that all the time. I think it was just for this particular case because it was word of the year that year. Oh, um, wow. And so, you know, I, ever since then, I've been expecting either a trophy or, you know, a, you know, a diamond-encrusted iPod to arrive in the post or something like that. But <laughs> ne- neither of these things happen at all, which is very sad. I can't afford a diamond-encrusted iPod, but what's your address? I'm just kidding. <laughs> the thing is, is if I tell anybody my address, then all of the anti-podcast people, there'll be this. The anti-podcast you had is quite fearsome. So I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get doxxed by the anti-podcast anonymous. It's just, you know, they're fearsome. They're fearsome. They're, they're all real-to-real guys. That you know, ugh, they're still mailing, the tapes, still mailing the tapes around. Yeah, you know that, and in fact, you know, people still do that, obviously, for major amounts of data transfer, and so it's just yeah. a, it's like a cosplay version of that. It's very, very weird, but you know, I'm scared of them, so <laughs> sorry. Just put London, you know, it all gets me eventually. Uh, I need a, a mustache like yours too. That was the other thing I wanted to bring up. Well, that's what you get when you invent a word. Actually, it just appears overnight. Oh, is that all it takes? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's why if you look in all those sort of old timey pictures, they all had quite impressive facial hair. It's because at that time there were fewer words in the dictionary, and so more people were inventing more of them. And so you know there was a lot more space you know in the world to invent new words, and so that's why they all have such impressive facial hair. You know, Dickens' massive mustache. You know. <laughs> Mark Twain, massive moustache. And it's because they just invented a lot of language. Nowadays, the dictionaries are almost full. So there's a, you know, we're, we're in the scarcity phase. So that's why you don't see quite as many impressive handlebar moustaches anymore. All right. Well, <laughs> well really, I, I feel, I feel we're weaker, you know, as a race. We're weaker as a civilization. We, you know, maybe we should, you know, invent new, you know, start afresh with a new, less populous language. And then everybody can reclaim their astuteness. Well, you convinced me. I'm giving up on personal grooming. Anyway, I watched your talk. I really enjoyed it. I never really thought about those effects of Moore's Law. Mm. Yeah. So can you explain your view of Moore's Law, Ben? <laughs> well, I mean, there are lots of different ways of looking at Moore's Law. I think the way that, that I've said in that talk and, and many other talks I've given uh, since then is that the general populace really has a hard time understanding the exponential nature of Moore's Law. That doubling and doubling and doubling again, because we don't really have a, a way to grasp, it's sort of in common sense, we don't have a way to grasp just how big those numbers get, how quickly. So that's the first thing. And then we just don't instinctively understand it. The second thing is that we don't understand the ramifications of it. And there are two, I think there are two main ramifications. The first one is that if it already exists and it's a little bit rubbish, then Moore's law basically means it's going to be brilliant in a few years time. So the example I give of that is, say, digital photography. You know, Kodak invented digital photography in the late 70s. It was terrible, right? You know, it was it took photographs that looked like a chessboard. At the same time, Kodak were making Kodachrome film, which is the most beautiful transparency film in the history of the world. And so they looked at digital photography and basically dismissed it because they said, look, it's not very good. So we'll just keep making film and we'll, we won't make digital photography. 
And of course, the disadvantage of that is that they entirely forgot about Moore's Law. The, the idea that it, once it became possible, then simply through that accretion of processing power, then it would, it would become good enough eventually. You know, and so roughly about the same time that Kodak went bankrupt, you know, Instagram, you know, the app which takes pictures that look as if they were shot on Kodachrome film, you know, was sold for $800 million. So it's the underestimation of precisely how damaging Moore's Law can be to incumbent businesses. That's, that's the first thing. And the second one is, is related to that, which is that if we can dream it up, it's going to happen. And so we're starting to see that this year, especially with artificial intelligence, that we're seeing AIs coming onto the market, which are profoundly science fiction-y, but are available in the stores. Really? What's an example of that? Well, two things in the past couple of weeks. I mean, the Amazon Echo, for example, the, the device that Amazon started to sell uh, or announced last week, which is a, it's a household appliance, which just sort of sits in the middle of a room, and it plugs into a, a standard wall socket, and it's basically the, the Amazon equivalent of Siri or Google Now or Cortana or any of those sort of voice-activated interfaces. It goes out to the cloud, it does web qu- queries, I think it talks to Wolfram Alpha and things like that, But all, and then you can also ask it to do things for, you know, you can say put such and such a thing onto my shopping list and it will automatically add that item into your, to your cart within Amazon. Now that's, you think about all of the different steps that that takes, you know, the natural language processing, the understanding of what the question is, going out to all these different systems and finding the answers to your questions. All of that technology, that's actually, that's a whole load of really quite deep AI stuff. And Amazon is selling it for $99. So, you know, we have a household AI or the beginnings of a household AI for less than a hundred bucks. And again, going back to the first thing about Moore's Law, with the capability doubling every year or so, even if Amazon Echo is rubbish today, or not as impressive as you might hope it to be today, in five years' time, in ten years' time, which is still not a long time to go, we can be looking at technologies we can't possibly imagine today. And the same thing as we happen to, we have today, if we think about the technologies we have today and go back ten years... What didn't exist? Well, smartphones didn't exist, YouTube didn't exist, Facebook didn't exist, Twitter didn't exist. You know, think of all of those different things that weren't around 10 years ago and how they've transformed the world. Now think of all of those things, but with an additional five or seven or eight cycles of Moore's Law, you know, 64, 128, 256 times as powerful as they are today. And, and we starting, what we find is we can't really imagine what's going to happen. And so, that's a fundamental shift. So we put Echo in our house, which is listening all the time. And then we have things like Facebook that is such a privacy-minded company. And, you know, these things start talking to each other and have these capabilities. I mean, some of it is frightening and some of it is exciting. And I'm not sure yes. which is which I'm more of, afraid or excited. I think it's it's both of those things. And this really comes to one of the other effects of Moore's Law, which is the capability of the technology and the growth in that capability far outpaces society's ability to to transform, to deal with it. From simple things like etiquette, you know, it, it took us 20 years to know not to have your phone on in a restaurant, for example. And, and to this day, you know, many people still keep your, you know, keep their phones on in cinemas and things like that. You know, so because we, we it's taken, it takes maybe a generation for people to, to learn how to deal with technologies at that very basic social level. And when we start adding in all of these, what are effectively miracle technologies, with technologies which to non-technical people are absolutely indistinguishable from magic. I mean, 
Amazon Echo, like you say, it's a box that sits in the corner of your room. It listens to everything you say until you, till it hears its name and then it listens more carefully and goes out and, and, and does what you want it to do. Now, if you were to take that piece of equipment and show it to somebody who didn't understand technically how it works, it's a god, basically, right? It's utterly magical. It's and alive. It's a, yeah, and, or if it's not alive, then it's certainly deeply mystical, right? It's deeply powerful. It's a crystal ball. It's a shrine. It's whatever you want to call it, right? It's, it's something like that. And so you can easily see how people, non-technical people, would be either completely freaked out by it or be utterly bewildered by it or completely bewitched by it, one of those things. And that's where you get into, we get into the, the more, what I think are the, the fundamental discussions we need to have about technology in, the, in this part of the decade, which is that all of these technologies are now becoming so ubiquitous and so powerful at the same time that they cease to be technological problems and they start to be political and social problems. Well, that's a point that you made in your talk was that our legislators don't understand the technology that we have now. And since it's moving at an exponential pace, it's moving twice as fast, you know, in a year or so as it is now and twice as fast as that a year or so later. So how do we have the conversations so that they have even a clue of what they're talking about or legislating against? Indeed. And in fact, since I gave that that original talk, I've sort of changed my mind a little bit about that argument. What I was saying then was that legislators, politicians, and so on need to be educated to be brought up to speed to with the implications of these things so that they can make good choices around these things. My current view is different. I think that actually what we're seeing is the increasing irrelevancy of those existing power structures. And so it's not so much that we need to educate the politicians about the technologies. It's that we need to protect society from the death throes, as it were, of those politicians or those power structures as they realize that the modern technology is forcing them into a situation where they, they're no longer relevant. A particularly good example of this is the financial world. If you're the Treasury Secretary, you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer here in the UK, for example, 20 or 30 years ago, you had tools that you could play with where you could affect the economy, for example. Today, what we're realizing is because of the network, because of the technologies that are involved in the financial system, then the, the finance ministers, the Treasury ministers, chancellors, all of those people, their levers are, are now floppy. They don't have efficacy within the systems that they used to have. And so what we're starting to see is the collapse of the modern, and certainly in Europe, we certainly see the collapse of the political system, or at least a, a crisis within the political system, not because of their lack of understanding of the technology. They probably, a lot of them probably do understand the technology. It's that the technology renders them obsolete in very subtle ways. And so it's more a matter of protecting ourselves from the counterblast to that. And certainly in Europe, we're starting to see the rise of political parties who are very much, I would call them like militantly nostalgic, that they want to roll back modernity because it's freaking them out. Because all of the things that all of the institutions that they hold dear and all of the ways of governing that they hold dear, all of the power structures within the society that they hold dear are all falling apart because of digital technologies. So this is interesting to me, and it's, I feel like there's a flip side to this. I mean, I, I've spent most of my life up till now very much feeling like the new structures that the technology enables are going to sort of 
grow up around these old structures and, and render them re- irrelevant. And I, I saw that as a mostly positive, benign thing. But lately, I've actually started questioning that. Um, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show about how I, I started watching an interesting BBC documentary series called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, which talks a bit about the rise of the what they call the California ideology, which was the same kind of idea that like this sort of libertarian utopian techno-utopian world where the new new self-organizing systems would be able to completely, you know, obviate the need for all the old political systems. And you still, you see that, I think, more than ever in some of the stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley, where there's almost a religion of disruption. But often it seems like there's very little ethics that goes along with that religion of of disruption. And, you know, people just sort of plow ahead, thinking that as long as you're disrupting, you're doing good. And a lot of times, and it's starting to look like a lot of times that's not you know, really necessarily the case. Yes, that's right. And it, we're seeing some very good examples of that today, the day that we're recording this with Uber, for example. So, you know, one of the, you know, Uber, the taxi, mm-hmm. you know, company, that they allegedly, last night, uh, one of the senior executives at Uber was at a dinner where he allegedly said that he was going to form a team within Uber to start doxing journalists who wrote things about you know that would be critical of uber for example wow and and yeah which is which is causing enormous amounts of fuss but uber themselves especially around europe are in, incredibly controversial in that they come into markets uh, you know specific cities with disruption above all else as their mantra and the local context is always much more complex than they they necessarily seem to acknowledge and the local context are specifically around taxis has grown up for particular for certain social reasons in those certain social places and so they come across that sort of california uh, ideology comes across in places other than san francisco as being a little bit sociopathic and for many technology companies they come across as being completely sociopathic or if not sociopathic then certainly as a corporate entity somewhere on the autism spectrum <laughs> Google used to be like this. Google's original attempts at social networking were always a little bit spectrum, right? Remember six or seven years ago when they launched, I think it was called Google Wave, maybe? Whichever one it was, one of their social network attempts. One of the big problems with social networks is that you have to, if, if nobody's a member of it, then it's useless. But if, if lots of people are a member of it, say like Facebook, then it suddenly becomes incredibly useful for the members. And so it becomes this, you have to get a social network up to critical mass for it to be useful. And so the thing that Google did that time was they said, well, what we'll do is we'll enroll every Gmail user into this network automatically, and we will automatically friend the top 10 most contacted people in your email inbox. And we'll let everybody see who everybody else's friends are. Ouch. Now, <laughs> Ouch. Now, if you're an engineer who doesn't live in a cubicle in Mountain View, then your top ten friends are your, are your top ten friends, and that seems that maybe seems an entirely reasonable thing to do. However, if you're somebody who's having an affair, if you're somebody who is running away from an abusive spouse, if you're somebody who has two groups of friends you should never really meet, oh my god, no! <laughs> Whatever it is, right? Whatever human foible or just human situation that you have, then then that, those boundaries between those people are very, very, very important to you. And if you, when you wake up that morning and you find that Google has automatically enrolled those 10 people in your social network and is showing each other everybody else's friends list, then 
really bad real world things can happen. And that was because of this lack of understanding of the wider context of stuff within the digital network from, say, a Californian companies. Now, that lack of understanding of the wider context that technology is found within is pretty much universal. We see that you know everybody has this. Everybody sees technology through their own frame. And so companies see the technology they make through their own frame. Politicians see it through their frame. You know, every individual user sees it through their frame. And so uh, half of the debate around new technology is just a, a mismatch of context where people don't quite see that a particular technology that they use in one way might be used in a completely different way by other people under completely different circumstances. Yeah. This means that as developers, as people who create software, we have a responsibility to think about people in contexts other than ours? Yes. I mean, think about the ubiquity of the sort of technology that we're talking about. If you're a mobile developer or you're building something that sort of people access through their mobile device, then that technology is incredibly intimate and important to that person. It's carried around in their pocket. It's never more than a meter away from them at any time in their life, right? It's in their pocket. It's on the little table by the side of their bed. It's on the little shelf in their bathroom when they're having a shower, you know. So these technologies are incredibly important to people and, and have access to the most important and intimate parts of people's lives. And if you don't understand that, then you're dangerous. You're actively dangerous. You know, as a technology industry, we've spent maybe the past 15 years pointing out how cool it would be if people adopted these new technologies into their lives and made them a fundamental bit of their lives. Now, people have done that. They've adopted these technologies and made them a fundamental part of their existence. Now, with that comes, from the developer's point of view, a huge moral responsibility. Because you could really ruin people's lives. I mean, like genuinely ruin people's lives. And not just ruin their lives, but you could get them killed. And if your instant reaction is, there's no way I could get somebody killed through a piece of software, then you're just not thinking wide enough or around enough people's lived experience that in order to to find the way that your piece of software could get somebody killed. And so... As an industry, we need to have these discussions and we need to, and we need to kind of watch over each other to say to other developers, you know, dude, like, make sure the data you're dripping, right, doesn't get somebody into trouble or, or whatever the case may be, but reach the level of ubiquity and reach the level of capability that mistakes like this could be really, really bad. Ben, can you give an example of software that you'd never thought would get somebody killed but could? Well, I mean, any form of communications technologies. So we're talking about, you know, any form of communications technologies where you, where you might be using it to talk about things which are, which are, which become unpopular with the place that you live in. Mm. Now, in the United States and the United Kingdom and, and, you know, countries like that, you're not likely to get rounded up and shot in the back of the head for, for an email that you wrote. But if you are creating a communication system that's going to be used globally, then you are going to have users which are going to be using it in those places. This talks to a thing that happened a few weeks ago, which was the the new head of GCHQ here in in the UK, you know, GCHQ being the the British NSA, basically. There's a new guy there, and he did an essay for the Financial Times when he started his job where he said that it was disgraceful that major tech firms, uh, specifically Apple and Google, were not allowing GCHQ and NSA to access encrypted data on their devices. And specifically that it was completely unacceptable that Apple and Google were 
implementing crypto on the devices that even Apple and Google couldn't, you know, break because that would fundamentally uh, weaken the capability of GCHQ or NSA to fight terror. That's an example. Now, in many ways, he's entirely right. We have to admit that there are bad guys out there who want to kill us, and we have to admit that it is the job of those intelligence agencies to find these people and stop them from killing us. And it would be, in given you know the best possible world, probably a good idea to give them the tools that they need to do that. However, what this guy was forgetting was that the wider context is that Google and Apple make devices which are sold everywhere. And so the very same backdoor that would be given to GCHQ or the NSA in order to find really, really bad guys right, could be used, for example, by, say, the Chinese state police to find pro-democracy demonstrators because iPhone 6s are on sale in China. And so Apple's responsibility is not to the safety and sanctity of the US and the UK and the Western world. Apple's responsibility is the safety and sanctity of, of, of its users. And many, many millions, if not the majority of its users, will be in places where the state is actually the bad guy. And so this is a sort of an example of, of how what might be seen as a, potentially a good thing in certain circumstances, allowing for a, a judicially controlled, you know, overseen backdoor into Apple devices that given a court order and, you know, and enough oversight, the NSA could use it to find the guy who's got the ticking bomb that's going to blow up Manhattan. You know, that might be a particularly good thing to have. But having that actually endangers potentially hundreds of thousands of people who have iPhone 6s in much more dubious regimes around the world. And so we, this is because everybody is looking at these devices from a different context. That's fascinating. So the technology of software and the internet with all its new interconnections that didn't exist 20 years ago lets our inventions spread outside of our own context fantastically quickly. Yes, insanely quickly. And so because of that, it creates enormous complexity because it's basically impossible. What I've just asked people to do, which is try and think of the ways that your technology can be used outside your own context, is basically impossible, right? Because it requires you to have almost superhuman powers of empathy uh, and empathy into cultures that you don't, might, might not necessarily know or even have heard of. So it really re- creates an impossible situation for developers. And so that sort of... That risk is actually inherent and is increasing. And then on top of that, we have the risk of complexity of all of this stuff, which is we don't really understand as a society what happens when all these technologies themselves start interacting with themselves. And that's something that we, that we saw in the, you know, in the financial crash. And it's certainly something we're about to start seeing as more and more AIs come onto the market. That not only do we not understand each other as people, not only do we not understand how to, how other people are going to use our technologies, but we also don't understand how other technologies are going to use other technologies and what's going to happen to the people then, which is quite a complex thing to have just said. And that gets back to your definition of Moore's Law, which is about it's not just the processors. You said you use IT to invent the next generation of IT. So it's, it's not just the processors anymore. It's everything we build. That's right. And, and so that's why we're seeing this increase in complexity, which is not just the, you know, the raw power of the technology, but the sort of the interconnections of the second order effects of that technology, of, of the social effects of that technology, of the, of the decision making that comes from that technology, of the different ways that we now live because of that technology. 
I'm still not sure how I feel about the fact that I carry around a Jack, Cracker Jack's Prize of Tomorrow in my pocket today. And it's only going to get worse, right? You know, yeah. the, uh, talking about the iPhone 6 again, you know, the iPhone 6 is as powerful, I think, as a MacBook Pro from 2008 or something like that. And it's 600, I'm, I'm trying to remember the number, I think it's like 600 times as powerful as a Pentium 75. And, and I know for a fact that the iPhone 5 was three times of a Cray 3 supercomputer, you know, the one at the end of Superman 3, right? You know, the, 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 the iconic nuclear, you know, supercomputer from the, from the end of the, the 80s, from the beginning of the 80s, sorry. You know, we, this, this thing of the amount of processing that we can carry around with us, the amount of capability and what that can then be used for. We really, even people who are technologically very, very savvy, we really don't necessarily understand not only what is possible, but what is soon going to be very, very commonplace. Google Research this morning announced a project that they had for an artificial intelligence that can look at a photograph and in English describe what is in that photograph. So it can say, this is a picture of, and the example they have is a picture of uh, two pizzas in boxes on top of an oven in a kitchen. And they gave that JPEG to this AI and the AI said, it's two pizzas in, a bo- in boxes open on the top of an oven in a kitchen. You know, and then there's another one, and the AI said it's two dogs playing in a park, and things like this. Oh. Now that's super cool. Because yeah, how fantastic but, for accessibility! <laughs> and right, also, but, think of—I mean, as much fun as Google Translate is now, think how much fun we can have with an image describer. Right, but also think of all the really bad things you can do with it. Right? Let's have a, let's have a think about all of the really evil things that we could do with that. Let's go out and get as many images as we possibly can from all of the, you know, from, from a database where there are lots of images, whether it's Flickr or, or we can crack into Snapchat or Instagram, something like that. And we say to this AI, okay, go through all of these billions of images and find me all of the naked people, right? Or find me all of the naked people that look like this person or you know, find me all the pictures of, and then whatever the thing that you want to find, right? Now, we, we can come, undoubtedly, this technology will result in all sorts of entertaining and interesting crimes. Just through blackmail, I can think of mechanizing that, right? And so, you know, so that, because that, you know, how cool would that be, right? Let's just make a bot that goes around and looks for naked selfies. And then when it finds one, emails that the, you know, identifies where it came from and sends a message to it saying, if you don't send this many bitcoins to this address, we will post this particular thing, we'll post this particular image to, you know, the front page of Reddit or something like that. Now, you could you could set a botnet on doing that. It'd be quite easy. It'd probably be quite profitable. I can think of very many ways to break the law of computers. It seems to be a talent of mine. Would that be a cyber crime? Yes. done. <laughs> I just had to get that word in there again. So, so the, the thing that's really interesting about this discussion is that where does the responsibility lie? I mean, so Google invents this technology, and